funny some of the tensions, some of the tensions of the church gathering together is that sometimes it's like, well, I know you've all had really hard weeks, and isn't it good to have a God who loves us when you have a really hard week? But sometimes you come in and it's like, isn't God good, and everything's great, and nothing's, there's no problems? You know, it, it's, sometimes it's somewhere in between some of that. Sometimes you might be all the way on the side if it's been a really hard week. I don't know where you're at, um, but isn't it, isn't it so, isn't it so good? Doesn't it bring you so much peace to consider that your God's love is like a mighty ocean? I, I, I try to comprehend that as I sing that. I don't get the depths of it. I can't imagine it. I, I don't get the breadth of it. I can't imagine it. It surpasses my understanding. And his love is even better than that. Like it, it, the metaphor of the ocean doesn't hold up to the greatness of the love of our God. So I hope you've had a wonderful week. <laughs> I hope it's been so good. And if it has been, then isn't it good that you can couch that in the love of your God, the goodness of your God? Turn your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. Chapter 4, moving along. In the days between the typewriter and cloud computing, if you were creating a document, you had to click the save button to actually save a file. I know, middle schoolers, it was crazy. No, I, I think like some of you guys might still click save. I, I use Google Drive most of the time, so like, I never have to click save anymore. Um, so I don't know where you're at in your, like, where you're in your computer worlds, but I know this. I know that there were a lot of days when I was having to click save that my computer would freeze or I might accidentally close out the wrong document. And I imagine most of you in here know the heartbreak of losing a document that you've been working on. Like, even as I think about it, I can almost even feel my heart just drop into my stomach because it's like, no, no, I will never get that paper turned in now. There'd be times <laughs> when I would lose hours of work, hours of work wasted. And no one likes to lose their work. I, I've never met anyone who's like, yeah, it's no big deal. <laughs> like, it's fine. I, I love doing this work so much that I'll pour another three hours into writing that paper. No big deal. Never met that person. We all hate it. And I wonder if Paul felt his heart drop into his stomach at the news of the Galatians falling to the schemes of false teachers. As he wrote this letter, he was definitely wondering whether he had wasted his effort. He wondered whether his toil and sweat and hard work had all been in vain. We're going to see that today in Galatians chapter 4. He's asking that question, has this all been in vain? Has all my work been wasted? They had the good news of salvation in Christ, these Galatians. And they were being led astray by a group in the church arguing that the test for salvation was circumcision, that you had to follow the traditions and the laws of Moses in order to be saved by Christ. And these Galatians were being led back into what was previous captivity for the Jews. So the Galatians would have maybe had some Jews, primarily Gentiles, 
but they were being led back into this. And as I was considering Paul's mindset as he was writing Galatians, before we, before we did Galatians together as a church, we, we went through Exodus. And in my quiet time recently, I was reading through Exodus, and I was reminded of how fearful the Israelites were of God. I mean, do you remember when Moses went to get the law from God, the, the, mount, the mountain was thundering and shaking, and the people were like, please, Moses, go for us. Like, you can tell us the law, but don't make us face God. They were so fearful. And if you were here last week, we, we went through chapter 4 in Galatians, verses 1 through 7. And in verse 6, this is, this is think of the, the Israelites who were saying, please, we don't want to be near God. Moses, go be an in-between, be an intercessor. And then look at verse 6 in chapter 4. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his, fa- of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we went, God's people went from this distant, we can't stand the presence, it's too great for us, to here in chapter 4, it's Father. What a difference. And as Paul's writing to the Galatians, he's like, how would you, why would you ever, why would you ever want to go back to, to the fearfulness of the law when you can have the intimacy of love, of the gospel, of Jesus? Why would you want that? Paul is telling the Galatians that their position before God was that of a child. It's close. It's intimate. And yes, there still is a healthy fear of God that looks like overwhelming awe, but we desire, like David, to be in his courts, to be near him, to call him Abba, Father. We get to claim him as our own because he claims us as his own. Christians, We get to draw near to God. Consider that. We get to draw near to God. We get to enjoy his presence. We have everything in him. We lack nothing. We were once in the darkness and now we are in the light. We were once dead and now we have life. We were once blind and now we see. We were once hopeless and now we have Hope, we had no purpose, and now we have the greatest purpose. We were unloved, and now we're loved. We were captivated by worthless trinkets, and now we are obsessed with the most valuable treasure. And Paul looks at these confused Galatians. He's like, How how are you making this trade? Come back to reality, sons and daughters. Come back to the Father. Before we read verses 8 through 11, I'd like to pray with you as we get into our text. And, and out of order, maybe, I don't, I don't know. I don't completely have this in my plans, but I wanted to tell you guys that we got some really good news. I've been, if you've been following along in our church emails, um, I've been trying to do some building updates in that. And as a church, we're meeting in this beautiful building. We're very grateful to Hopewell for. Um, but we got some news that the approval permits that we'd been waiting on for 
ever came in. So we got the permit. And so then there was like this final permit that we had to do after that that has been sent off. So it should be within two weeks. We, we have kind of like final approval on stuff. So that's really big deal. And so I wanted to say, church, thank you for praying through that and for that and continue praying through that and for that. I'll have hopefully a more complete update on some of that in a couple of weeks. Uh, but I just wanted to tell you that and encourage you with that as we go into praying for our time together in the Word. Would you pray with me? God, as we sit before your word or stand before your word now, I'm thankful for how inadequate we are. This infallible word that you have given us. God, we are broken. I find myself asking for forgiveness finding myself where I've let you down and let others down. I'm just so grateful that you're kind to us. You keep making yourself available to us in your word. I ask today, God, as we look at Galatians 4, 8 through 11, that as we look at the text, we would truly be seeking you that our time today would really be about fellowship with you and fellowship with each other. Thank you for extending the fellowship of yourself to us through Jesus. That we have the Spirit now with us. Father, we're so grateful to be able to call on you. Thank you for your generosity towards us, your kindness towards us always. God, even as we reflect on uh, a building to call our own someday, that um, that will be a launching pad, a sending place for our church. God, help us as we read this word today that we would not just think only of ourselves, but that we would think of others. God, we're so grateful that you gave the gospel to us so that we could give the gospel to others. We love you. We praise in your name. Amen. Read with me in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Before Christ, most people don't know which gods are ruling them. I think a helpful challenge from even verse 8 is know your gods. Know your little g-gods. The truth is that if you're not a Christian, you have gods in your life, whether you've identified them that way or not. Another hard truth is that even as Christians, sometimes we set up little g-gods in our life. 
it's important for us to be analyzing and thinking through, is Jesus Christ my God? I love it in verse 8, the word formerly, and your, your translation, translation may see something a little different there, but it's generally this idea of there was another time. There was another time in your life. There was another time in your life before Christ, and that's true for all of us. It's striking to consider that none of these Galatians grew up in the church. None of them could have been Christian for more than 25 years. The letter was probably written between 45 AD and 60 AD. Most, most of these Christians who this letter is written to were much newer than that. Many were brand new to the faith. And Paul says, look, look, remember, remember back when you didn't know God formerly? Remember when that, that was true, that you didn't know God, that you just had other gods? I mean, some of y'all in this room have been a Christian longer than I've been alive, and that's great. I love that. I'm so thankful for that. We need to be a church where we have people who have been Christians longer than people have been alive, and a church who has Christians who have just recently found life in Christ, who have been given life in Christ. That's a healthy church. It, that's, that's a blessing from God that we can say both of those things here at Provision Church. For many of us, we've known Christ a long time. Some of us can't remember a time when Christ wasn't our Savior. We've been blessed with Christian homes, and it's like, I just always remember believing that Jesus saved me. That's a great, that's a great testimony that, that our parents might have raised us that way. And that then we came behind that and said, yes, I believe Here's why it's important, though, no matter what the situation is, to remember the formerly. Because it's easy for us, if it's easy for the Galatians, who have been Christians for only a short time, to, to forget the formerly, then isn't it also easy for us to forget that too, that there was another time in our life? Can't sometimes we take for granted the great Martin Lloyd-Jones quote? Isn't it sometimes that we can take for granted our forgiveness? We can just assume that it's always been that way? Let me give you two reasons why it's important to remember the formerly. And one is joy in grace, that we take joy in grace. Look at what God has done. That should be a constant refrain for the Christian. Look at what God has done, that he took me, a dead, dying person, and made me alive. He gave me life. Look at what he's done. When we, when we have joy in grace, when we have this joy that can't be taken away, because of what God has done for us, it's giving credit where it's due. Sometimes we lose joy in our faith because we start taking some of the credit for our faith. We start thinking, I've earned some of the, this. Like, my goodness is because of me. Look at how righteous I am. I've worked hard for that righteousness. That, that kills your joy. So to remember that at one time we were all lost, reminds us to be joyful in God's grace over us. Here's the second thing, is that it reminds us to be compassionate towards others. It gives us compassion for others. Many are still in their formerly stage. We still need, as Christians, nudging to live sent, to be on mission, to be evangelistic wherever we go. 
when we remember that we once were lost, then it reminds us that there are still people around us that need Christ. There's nothing in our lives the enemy whispers more lies about than our obedience to the Great Commission. Do you find that true in your life? Is that just a statement I'm making for myself? The enemy, the enemy hates that I might be obedient to God's commission for my life to make disciples. And there's so much doubt. There's so much second guessing. There's so much disobedience in my life there. And remembering that we were the formerly as well brings us back into we need to be on mission. We need reminders and exhortation to be bold to share the gospel and ask for a response. And we need to be rebuked when we're satisfied never finding those opportunities. Never being faithful to be evangelists where God has us. I think it's a good reminder for us that God is not a universalist. He has written an exclusive gospel that you must belong to Jesus Christ. You must surrender your life to Jesus. It is by faith in Christ alone that you can be saved. And for us to remember that there was a time in our life before Christ is a good reminder that not everyone automatically goes to heaven. Hell is a real place where real people who reject Christ suffer forever. We have the great privilege of participating in God's work of extending salvation to the world. He gave us a role to play. He did all the work, and then he says, church, go share that. We need to remember that we were formerly, there was a time when we did not know God, so that we have joy in grace and that we have compassion. Formerly, you did not know God, and so you were enslaved to things that by nature were not even God's. By nature, there is only one God. That's what we're learning here. By by nature, there is only one God. By nature, only one God truly exists, and his name is I Am. 1 Corinthians 8 says that, when the people were fighting about, can we eat food sacrificed to idols or not? Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We know that there is one God, but sin does this thing in us in which we lie to ourselves, doesn't it? Don't we, don't we lie to ourselves because of the sin in us? We find some golden earrings and melt them down to form a, a cow, and boom, we've got a God. It's silly. It doesn't make sense. But that's our, that's our sin nature. Before Christ saved us, each one of us were enslaved to things that are not God's. If you're here and not a Christian, I challenge you to identify your gods. You might think, I don't even believe in God. (laughs) I reject that. There's no such thing as God or God's. 
Okay. Then let's ask this question. What things in your life consume you? What things in your life consume your passions and your thoughts do you give yourself to? Let's start from that assumption that everyone has consuming passions. It might be comfort. It might be family. It might be education or wealth or sex or a high. And if you can identify that thing or set of things, here's what I want to submit to you. That denying the spirituality of life doesn't make it untrue. That when things consume you, those things are taking a spiritual position in your life. Not only are those things captivating you physically and emotionally, they are captivating you spiritually. I think if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can think of the things that are consuming you. You're thinking in terms of doing what makes you happy, probably, or maybe just avoiding a feeling. I'll speak strongly here, is that I believe you're in denial that you're serving a master. Call your captor what it is. It's, it's a master. It's a God. I think many are being ruled by little g gods, gods they set up in their own lives and don't know it. They're enslaved and don't know it. They're not putting the right vocabulary to it. That's what Paul told the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 4, he says this. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip over to Ephesians 4. We're not far away from it in Galatians. It's actually the book over. The chapter, uh, yeah, the book over. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And as he's talking about Gentiles here, he's, he's basically saying those who don't worship the one true God, that these are pagans, they, they worship idols. Um, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the kind of thing that would be uncomfortable if I was having lunch with you and you're here and you're not a believer. If I was like, hey, if you're not a believer, let me read a verse to you where the Bible describes you. It's uncomfortable. And I hope you're not taking offense at me pointing this out, but what I'm saying is that if this is true and it is, then stop living in denial. Ask the true God to give you understanding. Know your gods. Be honest with yourself. Tell yourself the truth. We know from Scripture, Jesus said the truth will set you free. That's the message of Jesus. He came to set us free. In our sin, we're blinded to the truth. That's what's happening here in Ephesians 4, that we're, we're ignorant, that, that we don't have, we're darkened in our understanding before Christ. But Jesus lived a life without sin. He did what we couldn't do. And he died the death that we deserved. Our, our sin deserved a punishment before a righteous God. 
And so God himself came to take the punishment on himself, to take our punishment on himself so that we could be saved. He died the death we deserved, and then he rose again to break sin's curse. The curse of sin was death, is death. Jesus defeated death. This is the truth. And why did Jesus do this? He did it to set you free. He did it to be in relationship with you. He did it to claim for himself a people. And he offers that to you by faith. He says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You can do that right now. There's not a magic timing or formula for that. You can call on the name of the Lord at any time. And Paul is talking to the Christians in Galatia and he continues in verse 9. Look with me in verse 9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? The absolute and stunning beauty of this passage is that God knows you. That God knows you. You are known by God, Christian. You are known by God. Paul's coming back. Formerly you were lost, but now... Church, you know God. Or actually, better the better thing is that God knows you. It's not just that you know God, it's that God knows you. Think about how impossible that should be, that God would know you. My brother goes to church with someone who went to high school with a guy who plays for the Hornets. All right, put together what I just said. My brother went to, goes to church with a guy who went to high school with someone who played for the Hornets. And we were talking about it, and he was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, this guy I go to church with actually knows that guy. He's like a role player for the Hornets. You, you probably wouldn't even know who he is. But he was excited that that Hornets player knew him. Cody Martin has no idea who I am. He has no idea. It would be cool if he did. I think that would be awesome. I'd love for him to give me some courtside seats. But he doesn't know me. Do you know what's cooler than Cody Martin knowing me? Man, the God of the universe knows me. He doesn't guess at who I am. He hasn't seen a picture of me somewhere. Not, I'm not in a yearbook tucked away inside of a cabinet. He knows me. He knows the hair on my head. He knows every need. He knows me. I think some of you want so deeply to be known by someone you know. Maybe it's a crush. Maybe it's someone famous. Maybe it's a distant parent. It's just a great reminder that Jesus himself knows you. And not barely, but fully. You could roll out every hidden thought and deepest secret, and God would know it better than you do. Because he knows you. And what does that mean for you? It means that you're a child of God, Christian, means you're a child of God and you matter. You have worth. I hope you hear that from me consistently here on the stage at Provision Church is that you matter and you have worth. And that mattering and that worth is extended to you as an image bearer of God because he is the ultimate holder of worth and value. And so because he knows you, you have worth and you have value. 
And it means that your Savior is personal. He's lovely and kind and good. He's not distant and cold. He's affectionate and open to you. It's good for you to know him, but what great benefit for us that he knows us. It means he claims us. It means he receives our love. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Consider that connection. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. But how can we love God? Because he loved us first. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And that might seem small, but your love is worthy of rejection. (laughs) Have you thought about that? (laughs) Your love is worthy of rejection. Hey, and us long married people, and maybe not so long married people, maybe it's easy for to forget that sometimes, but like, especially those of you who are in the dating game right now, like, you know that your love is maybe sometimes worthy of rejection, or at least it feels that way. And I'll remind you, even those of you who are older, do you remember that girl in middle school or high school that like shot you down? Like, your love is worthy of rejection. And if a middle school girl has higher standards than your love, imagine what God's standards are. And he loves you. He receives your love. He doesn't reject your meager, measly attempt at love. He loves your love. He calls you to grow in love. And he loved you first. In love, he knows us. And in knowing us, he receives us as his children who call him Abba, Father. Not everyone who knows of God will be saved. Jesus told us that in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved. He said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. What's the standard? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a sweet, sweet gift from God that he might know us. It is an eternal gift that should never get old Forever, so it should not be old now. Let's refresh in our minds what is important to us. And the fact that we are known and loved by our Creator should just consume us. We should be obsessed that He might love and know us. This being known by God is what you are made for. And I say that with some caution. Because we live in a time and place where everyone claims God, or at least it feels that way. I try to share the gospel with some regularity and break into that conversation. And I can tell you, and this is maybe a bad feeling, sometimes I feel frustrated by how many Christians I meet. It's like, I know there are lost people around here. I'm really grateful that I meet many Christians. But sometimes in a culture where it feels like everyone is a Christian, everyone claims God, I really think there are some in the church who hear you were made to be known by God and it feels like a huge letdown. Wouldn't you rather me say you were made to sit in a Maserati? That would feel more satisfying to some. There's probably days in my life where I'd have to admit that would be more satisfying. You were made to be known by God. But why does that feel like a huge letdown? Maybe like walking into a dark room and flipping the switch for the light and actually hitting the switch for the fan. 
you're like reaching for it. You're like, why didn't, why didn't something happen here? I'm, I'm made to be known by God. Why is nothing happening? Like I hear that. I agree with that. You flipped the switch, but no light came on. You heard the click. You felt the snap, but nothing. So you're standing in the darkness. And it's happened to me. I see you guys laughing because you know that's happened to me. For cultural Christianity, we have a lot of people flipping the fan switch. Look, we've done it. We've grown up in church. We've been baptized. I've, I've sung the songs at church. I've done this. They pray to prayer. They read their Bible some. But there's no light. They're standing in darkness. Well, what do you do now? I flip the switch and I'm still in darkness. What do you do? You feel the pressure to pretend the light is on, right? I'm telling everybody I'm flipping the switch. I got to tell them the light's on. You're standing in the darkness talking about how nice the light is. I can see how clearly everything looks. It's beautiful in here. You should see all the colors. It's amazing that the light is on while we're standing in darkness. You're just imagining the light. You're not in the light. And it's too embarrassing to admit that you can't see. You don't know how to tell anybody because now you've spent years pretending that the light's on. Can we just be honest with each other? I think cultural Christianity is exhausting and it's suffocating. We feel so much pressure to have the light on when we know for a fact that we're in the darkness. Cultural Christianity doesn't produce truth, it produces shame. Cultural Christianity creates congregations who see the emperor with no clothes but are too afraid to say anything. I want you to listen to me, church. You have permission to be honest about your troubles with faith. You have permission to be honest when your faith in Christ is hard and you're not sure. Please be honest. As a pastor, I need people I can be honest with when it's like, this is hard right now. And I want to encourage you that the worst thing you can do is pretend that is the worst thing. Be honest. If being known by God doesn't sit with you as the greatest of all gifts, if adoption isn't the greatest of all gifts to you, don't hide your uncertainty. Let's talk about it. And I want to give you three avenues for this. One is our life groups. Our life groups is where we meet together, and I mean, most of our groups are around 10 to 15 people, and they're pretty safe to be able to say, I'm struggling with this right now. Uh, for our college students, we have a college Bible study. It's a little larger, but you can come before or hang out after, and there's safe space to talk through some of that. D groups are another place where it's groups of two or three, usually same gender, go deep with each other, talk about the really hard stuff. If you're not in a D group, I'd really encourage you to be a part of one. Shannon is our discipleship pastor. He's at the Connection Point. If you're like, I need to talk to somebody about some things, I think having a small group I could talk to about would be helpful. See him. And then one-on-one. -on -one. You might be str struggling with some stuff. Like, 
I think my number's on the worship guide, like the note-taking guide we put out. I think it is, isn't it? You can look at it. It is, right, Aaron? Is my number on there? Okay, it's on there. You've got my number. Like, call me if you need to talk through something. Talk to someone who's your neighbor. Like, don't let your doubt linger. And here's a bonus. Here's a bonus. So those are the three. Life groups, D groups, and then just talk to one-on-one. The bonus is pray like crazy. Don't just process in your mind and with others. Process with God. I think sometimes we try to hide our, our frustration and faith from God. We just talked about God knows you. <laughs> Don't hide it from him. Talk to him. Work it out. The goal is not to stay in doubt. The goal is to work it out. Whatever doubt you have, I promise, God is bigger than your doubts. He wants you to be in faith, a faith that isn't hampered by doubts. So talk about it. Work it out. Pray like crazy. Pray often. Pray passionately. Pray openly. Talk to him. Because here's the truth from God's word. There is a light switch and there is an emperor with clothes on. So if you feel in the darkness, be in his word, pray, talk to people. But there are many fake switches. There are many naked emperors. And that's the point Paul is making in verses 9 through 10. He says this in verses 9 through through 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So if you know your master, then you should also know your slavery. And that's what is is your master, what what is that little G God demanding of you? It's so often that we don't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. But here, these Christians, they were observing days and months and seasons and years. Verse 8 shows you that a lot of that had originated in paganism. These Gentiles, these Gentiles were probably offering sacrifices, doing fertility stuff. I mean, they, they would have been all about the seasons and years. But now they're coming and being looped back around into Mosaic law, seasons and years. It's like all these rituals of the law. Paul's saying, you've been set free. Don't get caught back into the slavery of works, the slavery of little g gods. Really, these little g gods and the slavery that they bring is really just demonic. That might feel awkward to say, like, demons? What? It's past Halloween, Mark. (laughs) I knew. But sometimes we get so past the idea of spirituality that we just want to put all the uncomfortable stuff away. But it is. Those little g-gods, the slavery that you have towards things that are not Christ in your life is, is demonic. And some people think that they can beat the demons in their life and be free from slavery to their problems and habits or addictions. They can do it on their own. But unless your freedom is in Christ, you'll end up just trading demon for demon. Slavery for slavery. Spiritual freedom can only be found in Christ. It cannot be found absent of Christ. And there's a a warning here in this text. There's a warning to be careful about the company we keep. We can't escape the culture we're in. We're not supposed to isolate ourselves from the world. That would be disobedient. But we need to be aware of the slavery around us. Our world is full of spiritual slavery. And around us it might look like political posturing, intersectional identities, sexuality, achievement, even good things like family. 
But all these things must be kept in their proper places. Paul's saying, do you want to be a slave once more? How can you turn back again? Don't forget the devastation of the old gods. Don't forget the devastation and only try to remember the temporary high. You're turning back. Don't be a slave again. We've got to keep these things in their proper places, and that's partly why we need intergenerational ministry in our church. We need older and younger saints poking at each other's blind spots with humility. That's good for us. We need people who have seen and experienced different things and who are obsessed with Jesus to have positions of authority in our lives. Like Paul with the Galatians. That was his position. But this discipleship can be difficult, and it was for Paul. Here's the last, the last little nugget here. Verse 11. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Maybe a challenge here is to know your outcome. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And you need to know your outcome as a laborer. Because your work, your toil, your sweat, your labor may be in vain. You may invest your life in others and they reject the truth. But what a way to waste your work. I mean, wouldn't you rather waste your work there than waste your work on lesser things? We like to waste our time. We, I, I believe that. I believe we like to waste our time. But you have so little time. And you have just so few breaths. And you have just so many days and nights. The question is, what will you do? Paul toiled in the fields of the harvest. He worked hard to make disciples, to be a faithful servant. What are you toiling at? What are you busy with? What are you investing your time in? What are you working hard at? Church, let's not waste our precious time. I hear the question, if the gospel is true, how could a good God let people die without hearing the gospel? Why doesn't he just give the gospel to those in the forest parts of the unreached nations? Isn't that unjust? God didn't sit passively by. He gave that task to the church. And we've been sitting passively by. Church, no more. Why? What's keeping us? Why are we passive? There have been many who have not been passive, but we need many more. It's not to earn the favor of God. It's not to earn salvation from God. He did that for us on the cross. Now let's let's work hard because we are known by God. We work from our joy. We toil and labor with the energy and endurance of one who has a prize waiting for them. At least Paul knew he put in the work. He knew his outcome was faithfulness, even if the Galatians was not. Truly, Paul was making an appeal from their emotions here. If you think in the whole context of the letter, he's really laid out the theological case and even kind of the historical case. And here he's coming back to him saying like, look, I've been with you. Are you really 
making my time with you a waste? Don't you love me too? But the truth is that Paul's work was not in vain, no matter what the outcome. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He was asking the questions of the Galatians. Is all of this in vain? I wonder if it's all been in vain. He's asking rhetorically. He knows that work in the Lord is not in vain. That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You will get tired and you will get weary and you will want to be complacent and you will want to stay home. And here we're being called to labor and toil for the Lord. And when you do, it is not in vain. It is worth your time. It is worth your effort. It is worth your energy. So abound in the work of the Lord. But what about the outcome of the one labored over? How can we know if our discipleship has been in vain? What about me? What about the Paul in my life saying, has this been in vain? How can I know for myself? And this might be an oversimplification of how to answer that question. What about how can I know? But what is your hope for salvation? I think it's a simple question that can help prod there. Has the discipleship in your life been in vain? Well, what is your hope for salvation? Is it Christ? Is it Jesus alone? Do you trust Jesus to save you? These are the essentials. This is the essential. Do you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation? Maybe this text and and our time together, this sermon from this text, is, is really a call for honesty. It's a call for us to be honest with ourselves. When we think about that, have we trusted Jesus alone for our salvation? It's easy to duck beneath maybe some of our veneer for that answer. Can we be honest and ask that question? Have I trusted Jesus alone for my salvation? What about this question? Am I obedient to the call of disciple-making? Am I obedient to the call of disciple-making? What about this one? What gods am I serving? Can I be honest about that question? What, what gods am I serving? Is it just the one true God? If you want help answering those questions, I'm going to be at the back as we continue to worship through song. But my hope always for our time in the Word together, church, is that it wouldn't end after we say the prayer at the end of the service. My hope for this is that we would carry the Word as we go. Because it's easy to be hearers and just drop it when we leave. But we want to be doers. It's one of the reasons our life groups reiterate. Like, we go back over the text. We don't it's not like Mark said this, what do, you, what do you think about it? We go back over the text and study it, and one of the reasons of that is that we want to be doers of the Word. We want it to infiltrate our hearts and minds. So I'll be at the back if you want to talk about it, but I hope you'll talk about it at lunch today. I hope you'll talk about it at breakfast tomorrow. I hope you'll bring it up with someone at work tomorrow. Hey, my pastor said this yesterday. I thought it was kind of crazy. He said, there's a lot of people who serve gods they don't know, don't even realize they're serving. What do you think about that? Is that crazy? Let's be doers of the word. Let's carry it with us. Let's be obedient.
Would you pray with me? Father, I love you so much. God, sometimes I don't understand what you plan, what you allow, and why things are the way they are. God, I want my way. But I'm really glad that you don't give me my way. I'm really glad you know what's better. I'm really glad that you've always known what's best. And that from eternity past, for eternity future, you will always do what is best. You will always do what is good. And I can trust you. I'm so grateful that you sent Jesus as a part of that. And that Jesus died at just the right time so that we could be saved. And that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose again. God, what joy we have in the resurrection. And what great joy we have in knowing that Jesus isn't done. <laughs> God, that he, he sent his spirit, and then he's coming again. Father, we're so grateful. We're so thankful. Thank you for letting us love you. Thank you for loving us to begin with. Thank you for knowing us and letting us know you. You are so good to us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.